Namo Tassa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asama Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asama Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asama Sambhutasa Pudang Damang Sangang Namasami I spent um, virtually every spare minute of the day today reviewing the um, lecture that Bhikkhu Bodhi gave and making notes from that in order to use that as a template from some of the talk this evening. So Bhikkhu Bodhi is the, is the scholar monk who uh, was the one who did the translation of the Majjhima Nikaya that we were reading from in the Sutta Nipata. And he's... Uh, um, one of the foremost eminent scholars alive today. And I don't have any idea how many books that he's translated, but it's vast number. So he's a phenomenal scholar. And uh, um, he gave this lecture series at his own monastery, and it was um, put into eight-minute YouTube sections and stuck on the Internet. And it's, it's on the Awakening Truth Facebook wall. So you can look yourselves, but it's a little bit kind of fiddly with different, um, you know, 12 different sections, and you got to, you know how it is. But anyway, so I thought I would go through it all, take notes, and then um, make a, a talk based on it tonight. So most of the his lecture was on the, like, the, the development of the different kinds of... Uh, uh, components of our society since since the time of the Buddha. And according to him, there were three basic periods that, you know, our culture has gone through. And this is not, you know, his what he's what he's presenting is also synthetic. It's also based on other writers and other thinkers and contemporary people today. And I know Ken Wilbur is another contemporary thinker who's done an extensive uh, amount of writing and talking about the evolution of consciousness since the beginning of time into present day and projecting into future and what it looks like. And there's a there's a lot of similarity in Ken Wilber's understanding and what Bhikkhu Bodhi is presenting. Though the map that Ken Wilber presents is is more um, intricate, more comprehensive. So um, the idea is, is is that in the in the course of since well since the time of the Buddha, the the societies have navigated through three different kind of basic times. One is a traditional time, one is a modern time, and we're now currently in a postmodern time. And so the traditional society is is where the Buddhist teaching started from. And it's uh, characterized by a hierarchy and a social order which is very fixed and... Uh, the the sense with the fixed social order is is that it actually sometimes is mostly dependent on birth. It's not something that you can actually shift. And so these fixed class structure and social structure uh, ended up locking a complex set of relationships that each person was deeply connected and embedded into. And so the relational field was 
was a predominant aspect of the society. And in that, in that society, ethics was covered or by virtue with an emphasis on honor and righteousness and courage, a service to tradition and respect for authority, and, and I might also add, you know, loyalty. So loyalty was a very highly regarded characteristic. So in the modern, the modern world started, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi, around the 16th or 17th century, and that was a, you know, the beginning of the age of reason, of critical thought. And in the critical thought, there was very much the um, appreciation and the, uh, the to question tradition, to question authority, and the shifted from it being a, a society that was embedded in a relational field in a social context to the use of personal will was then the kind of agent or instrument by which a person could better their own circumstance. It brought out qualities of strength and capacity for change, and yet in the process of doing that, it disconnected uh, people from an embedded family or relational field that the traditional society had as one of its underlying characteristics. So the characteristics of the modern world is individuality. And along with the individuality, um, there came to be a, a reduction of the, of, the, of the world and an entrance in control and domination. So nature was controlled, and, and then there was all kinds of, of nations that tried to dominate, so there was all kinds of battles and bloodshed. So the domination was not just on a governmental level, but it was also on a religious level. So there was all kinds of, of um, campaigns to uh, move into different places and convert the people to the religion of the, of the dominant culture. And that, that the modern culture then is characterized by loneliness, alienation, and isolation. And then the reduction from the transcendent, so the kind of the mystical or the mysterious or the, you know, the, the wondrous principle was then reduced to the kind of brute, senseless, unintelligent matter. So, you know, everything was seen as just made out of particles and the particles had no intrinsic um, value or life force in them. It was just uh, unintelligent stuff. And so with this unintelligent matter came an all-pervasive sense of emptiness and meaninglessness. And then the, the domination model inclined towards competition, and yet the competition had no higher purpose associated with it. It was just to dominate. There was no real value in why they were dominating. And so the, with this kind of competition without any higher purpose and a kind of pervasive sense of empty and meaninglessness, then the society began to be immersed in distracting themselves through obsessions with, with power, money, influence, sexual pleasures, entertainment. And so the virtues of this is the independence of will and thought. And in that independence of will and thought, there very much was part of that, the sense of I will do and I will think what I want. You know, my, my body... And my mind belongs to me, and I'll do what I want with it, you know. And so, and with with the kind of the characteristics of the modern society, also the virtues were the sense of diligence and eagerness to work in order to transform. 
So one no longer was placed in a society according to birth or according to one's family relationships or cultural context, but it very much was up to our own individual motivation and effort and determination and diligence to shift and to become what we wanted to become. And then then we're now currently, or then there's the postmodern model. And what Bhikkhu Bodhi was saying is, is that it actually hasn't yet fully been Im, Im, embodied in any, any one culture. But he said that he saw the, or he could see the seeds of it emerging in the 60s or maybe in the 20s. And, um, and he said that, you know, what his sense with this is about, well, let me, let me go back to the modern and just input a little bit. With Ken Wilber, what he was talking about with the age of reason was is that there was a complete collapse of the kind of the richness of the world and we became a flat land. And so the only thing that was really worshipped was the reason and the intellect. Yeah. So in the postmodern model, what, um, what that is about is an integration of all dimensions of experience. And so that is in direct contrast to the traditional approach. Because in the traditional approach, there would be different aspects of one's experience that would be in opposition to each other. And so in a traditional approach, there would be an emphasis on transcending birth, aging, sickness, and death to leaving the body behind and to, and to having access to a transcendent understanding which then left or, or was no longer part of the world of, of uh, the sentient domain. So, but in the postmodern model, there's an interest in, in bringing the transcendent into all aspects of our life. And so um, that would be including the, the world of sentient beings, understanding how we are similar to all sentient beings. It includes our bodies. It includes aspects of our own um, hearts and minds. And it includes the natural world, because obviously life cannot be sustained unless there is a natural world that supports us. So at this juncture in time with the kind of crises that are um, as a result of global warming and and, uh, deforestation and extinction of species, it's like it's no longer just uh, a trivial issue for um, the activists to get involved in. It's like it's a a life-threatening situation that is worthy of everybody's attention. And so the postmodern model then moves from the individual materialistic reductionist kind of values into looking at community and moving away from the domination submission model of the modern era to to a, a model of mutuality, mutuality of respect and mutuality of concern, mutuality of consideration. So the meaning and values in the postmodern world comes from interconnected ways of being and a community in our uh, collective pursuit of these uh, goals. And so the virtues within a postmodern context are equality, justice, uh, participatory democracy, human rights, 
the rule of the law, which means that, you know, if you've got a lot of money or you're born in a privileged society, that still does not exempt you from the laws of our society. You still have to follow them. Whereas in other times in history, your birth and your position and your wealth would exempt you from having to abide by certain laws. And that um, underneath all of this is a sense of a cooperation, sharing, and respect for all. So we have a historical process, an evolutionary process that has moved from a traditional to a modern to a postmodern world. And so the question is, you know, what does Buddhism look like as a model in this postmodern world? You know, if we're beginning to start bringing the practice into our lives in a way which is congruent with the society that we're living in, what does that look like? So if we take the eightfold path as a kind of template and then use that as a kind of reflecting uh, basis for how this works, there might be from this some greater sense about how or what we need to do and how we need to place our attention, what kind of activities we need to engage in, in order that what we're doing is actually congruent with the world that we're living in. So the Eightfold Path consists of right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And on a classical level, you know, right view is understood as the cognitive aspect of wisdom. And that's interested in looking at seeing things as they really are. Just that. And so, you know, one of the classic definitions of right view is the understanding of the Four Noble Truths that one is actually able to see that there's suffering, to see that there's a cause of suffering, to see that when one brings attention to the cause of suffering, there's a cessation of suffering, and that there's a path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Right view is classically described in terms of understanding karma and cause and effect, understanding the benefits of meritorious actions, understanding the importance of looking after one's parents. So it's specified in terms of activities that are connected in our world that understand how we can see things as they really are and respond accordingly. When we look at right view from integrating it into our world, you know, one of the things that we need to come to terms with is is that in order for Dhamma to be alive, it has to be applied against the backdrop of the situation that we're living in. It doesn't make any sense to be um, following a traditional interpretation of it when we are no longer in a traditional society. And so that right view in this context means that not only are we looking at things as they are in a universal way, but we also need to be aware of the overarching needs of our particular society and respond to them, not just ignore them. 
So right intention, on a classical definition, right intention is the volitional aspect of wisdom, and it is the intention to bring non-harm into every aspect of one's life. When we look at that in terms of how do we apply that, what we need to see is how sometimes the traditional definitions are no longer serving us. And if we are interested in bringing non-harm into every aspect of our lives, that means every aspect of our lives. It means our relationships, it means our structures, it means our communities, it means our religious uh, practices, it means everything. And so we have got to engage in a discussion about the suitability of our practice and the suitability of our communities in the context of the, of the situation that we're living in. Because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense to do things that are harmful or that are supporting things that are harmful or that are colluding with things that are harmful. It just doesn't make any sense. So right speech is classically defined as the refraining from um, untrue speech, uh, harsh speech, divisive speech, or useless speech. And yet, you know, when we look at what happens in our own relationships with, with friends or in families or in communities, we can see that, you know, one of the delineating factors between a community which can flourish and a community which is struggling or being shredded is what happens at the level of speech. You know, the way we speak about each other really has an enormous impact on the sense of safety, the sense of trust, the sense of, of um, the possibility to be able to engage in the group in a way which is actually productive. And so, you know, one of the things that the sisters have learned and the monastery has learned over the years that it, it wasn't enough just to sit on our cushions and sort this stuff out. We needed to learn how to relate to each other and speak to each other in ways which was um, bringing forward the principles of non-harming into our communication patterns directly. And so we picked up uh, contemporary modalities to help support us with that. And one of the ways that we did that was by learning nonviolent communication. And so we had people come and help train us, and we studied it, and we've got um, more skilled at facilitating things so that we were able to take full responsibility for our own um, uh, feelings that were arising, uh, be clear about the facts of what we had observed, be clear about what it was that we were hoping for or needing, and asking for some kind of a of a reciprocity in the way uh, of, of, of follow-through. And so in, in this whole process of bringing skills, direct skills to our speech, and also learning how to facilitate meetings and support a diversity of views being heard, then the community skill level increased enormously, and, and so did the sense of safety. And so these things are not uh, trivial they're actually quite significant. The next of the eightfold path is right eightfold path is right action. And 
again in a in a classical interpretation right action is refraining from harming refraining from stealing and refraining from sexual misconduct and in our contemporary society there's um there's certainly no shortage of opportunities to explore all of these you know non-harming is a big topic and how we can live that in a way that feels congruent with our values is worthy of ongoing conversation it's not simple non-stealing is also a rich topic because with all of the copyright laws and the photocopy machines and the digital this and the digital that and the you know it's actually really easy to to take things which are not given and so to have a sense of clarity and uprightness around this whole area is worthy of of conversation and then the whole topic around sexual misconduct again you know for me it's not just as simple as refraining from having partners who are engaged in other relationships and refraining from having partners who are minors or you know it it's about you know the whole um idea of bringing the fullness of one's own sexuality into practice it's like allowing that to be an area of investigation and contemplation so that it's not a kind of black box that one leaves outside of the meditation hall and then ends up in a kind of situation of chaos outside of the retreat it actually needs to be picked up and investigated and worked with and because the energy of sexuality is not easy it actually takes quite a commitment to engage in staying present and conscious through the whole investigation process so that in oneself in in one's relationship with others there's clarity and an interest to move with compassion and kindness and friendship and respect in terms of right action in terms of this new model for a postmodern world world what is needed is the 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 action to bring the transcendent domain into the whole area of the sentient domain and the natural domain so the sentient domain is all of the people and all of the animals and everything that's alive and the natural domain is the rocks and the water and the air that's around us it's the the physicality of the environment that we're living in and so rather than split and separate what is needed is integration and so our bodies are the temple for our practice it's not the thing that we try and get rid of in order that we have nibbana it actually is the the place in which we're practicing is right here in this fathom long body right livelihood is classically described as um engaging in livelihood does, doesn't cause harm and the kind of harm that's classically described is 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 livelihood that it's engaged in um uh firearms alcohol uh raising animals for slaughter or uh elements of prostitution or illegal illegal kinds of uh of of trade so uh, uh or um and so again the the livelihood thing has to do with you know 
it, we take a lot of time and effort in order to earn a living. And if what we're doing with that is congruent with our values, it has a completely different effect than when it's not. And so if there's a commitment to harmlessness, then it's, it's, uh, it is best when that commitment is seen through every aspect of our life. In terms of the classic understanding of right effort, um, again, there's the, the effort to uh, develop wholesome states, the effort to abandon unwholesome states, the effort to um, develop wholesome states that haven't been perfected, and the effort to prevent unwholesome states that haven't arisen from arising in the future. So that is kind of a sense of, you know, just taking some care that the choices that one makes are actually in accordance with the the values that you have so that you don't set yourself up for um, a lot of work down the road because of some choices that one made in the present which are not so skillful. In terms of a new model for a postmodern world, I think what's really needed in this is a lack of rigidity about the way that we look at meditation. I think people have this understanding that meditation needs to be about sitting on your cushion for a certain amount of time every day in a certain, at a certain time. And I think when people are in the kind of pressurized situations that we are with our lives and our works and the information that we're getting, first of all, sitting all the time is probably not what we need. Being inside all the time is probably not what we need. And probably what is needed for many is having much more fluid sense of how their body is actually responding to how their, their ability to process what's actually happening for them. And so if meditation was opened slightly to include contemplation and awareness of movement, standing, walking, being outside then I think what we would experience is is that the meditation time itself would be more um, nourishing, more fruitful, and more um, supportive of the mind and body coming into balance and allowing insight to arise. In terms of effort uh, for for a postmodern world, I think really what's needed is the is to manifest the intention to integrate the practice into every aspect of being a human being alive in this world today. And that includes what is needed to build community. Because one of the things that we experience in our societies is a pervasive sense of loneliness, of isolation, and of alienation. And what is needed to combat that is a community of people who are sufficiently like-minded and like-hearted to be able to work together towards common goals. Right mindfulness, classically, is about remaining in the present, open and quiet and alert. And classically, right mindfulness is stated as being mindful of the body, mindful of feelings, mindful of mind objects, and mindful of the categories of dhamma by which we can understand mind objects. So the 
practice that we've been doing this last week on the Satipatthana is the classic definition of right mindfulness. In terms of our own practice of integrating this into the whole of our lives, I think it's really useful to continue to remember that question, you know, what is happening right now and how am I relating to it? That's a perennial question that is always applicable. And again, I think one of the things that's classic is is that people confuse mindfulness with concentration. And because we come on a retreat and we have food that's prepared for us and we have a retreat manager who helps with schedules, we've got bell ringers, we're hopefully not reading emails, then what happens is, is our concentration levels normally are stronger than in the world where we're having to multitask and cook dinner and wash clothes and do emails and drive all at the same time. <laughs> so when our concentration diminishes, then it's not as a- one's not as able to stay pinpointed and focused on the minutiae of detail that one's experiencing. But mindfulness is not about that level of concentration. Mindfulness is the ability to know what's happening and how one's relating to it. To know where one's body is, how one's body is disposed, what kind of activity one's doing, whether the mind is confused or not confused, whether it's overwhelmed or not overwhelmed. You know, we have this kind of idea that overwhelm is not an adequate object for meditation. But that is not a right understanding. Overwhelm is, a particu- is, a, is an absolutely valid object of meditation. And we can know it, and we can know what it feels like, and we can know our reaction to it and our resistance to it, and we can know that we want it to change. And all of that is right practice. And so... What we need to remember is, is that the this highly specialized conditions of a retreat are set up in order to support clear understanding of what our internal process is. But we cannot expect that our mind states are going to stay the same once we leave here. And so, you know, the natural kind of things that come up for people is, you know, there's sensitivity and they're sometimes feeling overwhelmed and it's hard to go back to multitasking and it takes a little while and then one feels badly because one thinks one's not practicing correctly. You know, So it's not that often that people have all day for several consecutive days just to be present with what is unfolding. And so it's not correct to assume that in the regular situation of our daily lives we will have the same kind of mind states that we do on the retreat. So it's helpful to know that mindfulness and concentration are not the same. And that as the concentration changes, it doesn't necessarily mean that our meditation is going down the toilet. But in terms of concentration, what is helpful is to take some time to let it all go. You know, to let the world end. To put down the, e- the telephone and the email to put down the the doing and the busying and the trying to sort and everything and have some time every day where one is just able to be present with what is actually unfolding on an internal level.
And so, you know, what's needed to support concentration is very deep relaxation. And so it's not always the kindest thing just to force ourselves to sit when we've been really tense through the the kind of impact that we've had to negotiate through a day. So what's helpful is to spend some time attending to our own physicality of what our physical body needs. And in being able to attend to that, then we're able to respond and figure out, well, what is actually needed right now in terms of meditation? So a new model for a postmodern world does not throw out the teachings, but seeks to integrate them into every aspect of our lives. To seeks and to seek to, to that that our life is connected uh, in our communities and in the way that we are making choices about the resources that we use, in terms of the kind of uh, pollution and recycling and carbon footprint that we have. And so in, in this way, there isn't a split between this longing for Nibbana, which is somehow outside of our bodies, outside of our communities, outside of the natural world that we're living in but a way of bringing the transcendent into the very domains that are the ones that we're living with. So one of the things that I found so um, exquisite about Bhikkhu Bodhi's presentation was, is, is that in- intuitively this is something which you know, has made a lot of sense uh, for many years now. It's just that his level of articulation is uh, just exquisite and being able to pull together things in a way that, um, uh, you know, in a kind of historical framework isn't just, it's a very lovely gift that he has. Uh, what I've read of Ken Wilbur is similar in terms of the, the all quadrants, all lines model is, is that what's needed is not you know, a narrow focus on a small area, but an ability to be able to integrate and to develop in all of the different areas of our life in terms of of grow and understand and uh, get competent and skillful. And so um, in this way, Bhikkhu Bodhi and Ken Wilber's maps are overlapping in the sense that they're talking about an integral... um, development of bringing the spiritual practice into all of the aspects of one's life. Though the the map that Ken Wilbur has is much more uh, intricate and uh, uh, articulated. Uh, His books I also find very, very useful, very compelling this time. So, you know, we're at a crossroads in our society in many different ways. And certainly, you know, I can see that some of the the trouble that I came, that is being um, enacted in the communities in England is partly because there's some people who still are very strongly invested in a traditional interpretation of the tradition. And there are other people who see very clearly that that doesn't work, it hasn't worked, and we're not part of that. So we're trying to find a way where what we're doing is actually congruent with what our understanding is. And so the, the kind of conflict between different 
levels of understanding is, is part of what is actually playing out on a global level right now. But my own personal sense with this is, is, is that when you really understand what harmlessness means, and when you really understand that there isn't a fixed identity to whom all of this is happening, then it's natural that the care and the concern and the respect flows outwardly, without limit and boundary. It is also natural that there's any time one interacts with structures or policies or dynamics which are occluding that natural flow. They're based on power, they're based on dominance, they're based on subjugating. That that is directly in opposition to what comes from direct practice and understanding. And what's in opposition to direct practice and understanding is important not to do. So in some ways, it's not very complicated. You know, it's actually pretty straightforward. But in other ways, in terms of actually allowing this new paradigm to come into manifestation, we have a a few more opportunities for discussion. You know, what does it mean to create communities that are actually congruent with a postmodern model and paradigm for this world? You know, the traditional um, practices and teachings is based on a sense of urgency about uh, how fragile our life is and how inevitable death is. And I don't think that we need to dismiss these teachings. I think they're still relevant. But rather than leading us to a motivation to get out I think what is needed is the encouragement to move in and to touch every aspect of who we are as a person and to begin to start finding a way where the our deepest understanding is the kind of light that is guiding and and forming the the values and the choices that we make and supporting the communities that we're part of where our genuine sense of for the benefit of all is what's motivating us. My sense is is that this practice gives us resources that enable us to stay connected with our own needs 
and an empathetic resonance with others. That from that, we have the ability to resolve the problems that we're facing in our world today. And so that's why I feel so committed to living this way. And that's why I feel committed to creating practice environments that support this. Because I think it's critical. So I think I'll end here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.